I wonder what struck you if you've been journeying through 1 John with us over the last few weeks. What struck you about the letter? His love, the doctrinal faithfulness he's calling his church to, that Christ through John is speaking to us, the fact that we are in a struggle and that the world is a place that Christians in Christ have overcome. It's interesting, isn't it, that all these different themes come centrally together in this call here of verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I think, Frank, if you can flick on the slide, there's a picture here of someone called Heather Wall. She is a producer um, of music programs on Jazz FM. She's a committed believer. She's someone who wants to follow Jesus Christ and do that with courage and boldness in a workplace. And in a recent interview with the Christian Workplace Organization, LICC, she shared um, this. The role of producer changes almost every day. For some shows, you have very little involvement. And for others, you could be doing literally everything except speaking into the mic. Although this is a very supportive office, over the years in various places, I've seen how insecurity can have a really negative impact on work culture. I wonder if you can agree and recognise that. She continues, so much of working in media is having to prove yourself, and it would be very refreshing not to have to feel like that. To actually live in the freedom God has for us, that's my aspiration. I'd love to be so secure in my Christian identity, so confident in what I'm doing and who I am in Jesus, that I can be a witness. It's very insightful, isn't it? That need for security, that need for freedom, which God has called us to, but it coming from an assurance of all that Christ has given us. I think Heather captures the reality that's close to all of our hearts as followers of Jesus. We want confidence to live for Christ. We want confidence that gives us a level of certainty and assurance that helps us in everyday life, whatever circumstances we're travelling through. And human beings do need assurance. We need someone to say, it's all right, everything will be okay. I was thinking about this time three years ago. I wonder how you felt. March 2020, we were on day four of the first COVID-19 lockdown. Interestingly, uh, during that time, I, I listened to a lot of uh, Mark Kermode and uh, Simon Mayo's Five Live program, their film review stuff. And they interviewed the Oscar-winning actor Tom Hanks just earlier, a few months earlier in January 2020 just before the pandemic, and the actor was reflecting on some of the challenges of life and just simply said, halfway through the interview or towards the end of it, I'm not quite sure, but he, he said these words in his soothing Tom Hanks voice, which I won't be able to impersonate. Remember this too shall pass. Remember this too shall pass. The interview in the worst, they went viral. And indeed, um, during that lockdown period, the first one, uh, Simon Mayo would play this towards the end as well, with something requested by the listeners frequently. We want someone we can trust to tell us it is well. 
And as Christians, we need to hear words of assurance. We're no different. There's a connection and resonance there. The, the words that build our faith, that come from God, that are his rock-solid truth. And the Apostle John knew this. He knew this was vital for his churches spread across first-century Turkey, facing opposition as well as false teaching that could shipwreck their love for Jesus. John knew this. They and us need certainty. And so again, listen to the clarity of his purpose in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now John is confident these people are believers. They accept the gospel. And in verses 6 to 12 um, of chapter 5, John has demonstrated that God has given his full testimony to, to, to us through Jesus, through his spirit, through the events of his baptism and death. And he wants their belief and ours to be rock solid, solid and grounded intellectually, theologically and experientially. God's spirit live in those Christians in Turkey. We're told that in chapter 2, verse 20. We're told that in chapter 4, verse 1. He who is in us is greater than he who is of the world. Why? Why do they need to know this? So that eternal life, that gift, which cannot be found anywhere else, cannot be found in anyone else, that full truth about who Jesus is, Accepting that brings life eternal. And the whole letter has been concerned to help this congregation hold on to that certainty, hold on to that glorious truth. And in verses 14 to 21, well, these verses then show in some way how that certainty is applied in everyday lives, in the issues that have already been raised in the letter, what it looks like to know and trust God, what it looks like to love Christians, what it means to overcome sin, what it means to overcome Satan, what it means to persevere in the face of false teaching. And that certainty in the knowledge of the life in the Son of God leads to action. Assurance leads to confidence, and in verses 14 to 17, we see assurance strengthening different areas of our life, particularly our prayer life. So let's look at this together. Assurance strengthening our prayer life in verses 14 to 15. Have a look at those words, starting at verse 14. This is the confidence in the light of the eternal life we have. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what he asked of him, what we asked of him. You see, the mark of a Christian is boldness to approach God in prayer, to be free to speak to him on all occasions. What a gift. What a mind-blowing gift. Our conversation with God, therefore, should be a mix of openness and honesty. That there's an informality that doesn't worry about how we say our words or the order that they come in. But are they authentic? Are they from the heart? Are they reverent coming before this God who knows us? Our prayers should be a healthy mix of praise and thanks. Confession for our sin as we saw in chapter 1 verse 9. 
because John assures us that God is a forgiving God. It's also urgent petition, as well as unrushed, thorough intercession, lifting many needs, many people, to Jesus Christ for his help. And John is in no doubt that God hears us. That Greek word akouo is repeated twice. He hears, he hears. God hears our prayers favourably. He is paying attention. He isn't glued to a computer screen or to his phone whilst we're talking to him, as so often I am when Emily's speaking to me or someone in the house. He gives us his undivided attention. Our Heavenly Father knows. He listens. He always answers. And yet, he isn't our cosmic servant. He isn't the heavenly exec PA running around after us, doing our bidding. The prayer he honours is always, we can see it in the text, according to his will. Jesus taught his disciples this, precisely this matter, in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 10, where we read, Our Father in heaven is how Jesus tells his disciples to start praying. Abba, in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your name is number one. Your name is not just a special name. It is the name above all names. Your kingdom come. Not mine. Not my empires of dust I want to build to make me feel great. Your kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, as I pray, would you use this form of dust that you took from the earth and breathed life into to show that your kingdom is the one to live for. Your name is the ultimate glorified name. Again, with his disciples on that last night as he was going to be arrested, and you can hear the echoes in John's Gospel, chapters 14 through to 16, and these words must be on John's heart even now as he's writing this letter where he writes in chapter 14 and recalls Jesus' words, verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Can you see the direction? The Father and Son, utterly one. Our prayers empowered by the Spirit. As Jesus says, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it for his glory. And his glory is our ultimate good. John wants his church family and us to see God as the loving, gift-giving Father. In a world that is uncertain and chaotic and dark, this is the God who calls us to know him, but not as a spiritual vending machine where you, you press the buttons to get the treat you think you deserve or you really need. And you can see already just from this simple statements here in these verses how it challenges different teaching that is prevalent in Christianity. Teaching where perhaps there's an unhealthy focus on prosperity. Pushing the idea that if we exercise our faith the right way, we can ask for all the health, all the wealth, all the success we want on our terms. That is erroneous. 
It is dreadful. It's dreadful because it makes Jesus my pet. It makes God the person who just responds to my needs. It makes my success, my wealth, my health number one. How horrific. And it only takes a small degree to get there. Church, be wise. That teaching has no place in the scriptures. There's no place for cross-shaped discipleship which involves some level of suffering, some level of hardship for all disciples this side of glory. But John's view of prayer also challenges the more conservative, the more cautious, perhaps the more reserved, perhaps indeed for some of us from our reformed tradition. It's a word of warning here. Because there's an attitude that says, I couldn't possibly bother God. Sounds so polite, doesn't it? But it is just as wrong as what I just said about prosperity ideology. It's an attitude saying to God, I, I, possibly, I, I can't possibly bother you. It's a mindset that actually doesn't believe he is our generous father. Worse still, it says, I can manage by myself. I'm self-sufficient. I have the means within myself. You can smell the sulfur all over that. There's no room in that kind of approach to a wholehearted, joyful dependence on God, a childlike running to him with everything, that trusts that he hears us all the time, that we can pray to him about everything. And the darker lie that we can all believe is quite simply that prayer is a waste of time. Nothing changes if God's sovereign. So why bother? And Satan's going, that sounds quite spot on. You keep believing that. The Bible commentator David Jackman put it like this. Answers to prayer do not depend on a right diagnosis or analysis of the problem by, by us as we pray, but on a childlike submission to the Father, knowing that he will give what is best according to his will. If he were to answer on any other basis, which of us would ever dare pray again? It makes sense, doesn't it? There is no pending tray with God, he carries on. Though from our perspective, the outworking of the answer may not be seen until some time in the future, our requests are granted at once. The trust that opens up our needs to God is not disappointed. That's the exercise of faith that sees Christ as he truly is. The eternal son. The father who is generous and loving. And at this point I'm going to invite Emil, who is on the welcome desk, so hopefully you already received a very warm welcome and hello from him and a big smile. Because Emil and I were chatting um, 
over the last couple of weeks about answered prayer, and uh, this seems like an ideal opportunity to encourage you with some testimony from Emil. So over to you. How has God answered prayer for you? Okay, well, for those of you who haven't seen my smile yet, this is my smile. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm Emil, for those of you who don't know me, and also for those of you who know me. Um, so we moved here two and a half years ago. We were originally from the Netherlands. And one of the, the primary reasons why we moved here is because I got a job as a lecturer here at the university. Um, and the last couple of months, uh, I realized they were a bit stressful because sort of my initial contract was three years and uh, my final evaluation was coming up and I um, didn't have enough publications, which is a huge factor in our job. Um, and I have this tendency of sort of carrying these things on my own uh, to, to keep them in my, myself. And, but I reached a point where I was just not able to do that anymore. It was too stressful for me. And um, so I started talking about this and, uh, with like people around me, my life group, with Pete, uh, with my wife. And, and, uh, and yeah, I started asking for prayer. Um, and that in itself was already very liberating. I noticed that it took away a lot of weight in my heart. Uh, so the thing that I was so stressed about suddenly became less important. Uh, and the thing that I recognized was that what Pete said, it felt like a very selfish thing to pray for. Like, how can I bother God to pray for my career? Uh, um, but I think you can still pray for God for these good things. And then if something else happens, uh, if there is another outcome, uh, believe that it's still in God's hands. Um, so after I started praying for this with people, I sort of reached this tipping point and I started, I think, telling it almost to everyone. Um, and then shortly after, I got two basically papers who were close to accepted. So after it was like two years of having only rejections, uh, when I asked for prayers, only two really positive new stories came in. Um, so this is something I really attribute to praying to God. Um, and I think um, so often we keep these things we're stressful about, uh, whether well, in my case it was this, or whether it's related to your study or your family life, or we keep it to ourselves, right? We don't bring it to God. But I think it really, even though looking back on it through this phase, it was not always easy. I, uh, it, it was very stressful. Looking back on it, it really showed me how God wants to be part of these struggles and that we can bring it to them. To him um, and how much power there is also to just ask our fellow Christians to pray for us because when I got this good news it was so cool also to share it with the people who were praying for me like this this gave me such a uh, yeah a sense of connection and then the realization that other people were praying for me amen amen I think a big round of applause not to a male but to the Lord because he's the one who answers and it is a huge encouragement. There's a huge encouragement to me because actually Emil's wife, Harminka, is involved with gospel ministry here, reaching international students. If Emil doesn't get those papers published, the job stops, they move. You think, Lord, really? This is about the gospel expanding in Manchester. Why would you want less people here? <laughs> And that's kind of the wrestling in prayer I was doing for them. But we can be honest. We can run to our good Father. And it should hearten us, even if we're going through a time of hardship. 
And there is an assurance here as well, which we'll move on to. Verses 16 to 17, second point. An assurance to pray for other Christians. Emil already said that. Let's pray for one another. Let's ask each other to support us in prayer. But particularly here, John narrows in on the struggle against sin. So in verses 16 to 17, we'll look at these now. And just so that we think, oh, where's he getting this from? Is this sort of off the radar? Well, no, not at all. John's already spoken about loving one another. He's made that really clear throughout the letter. Let me just read you a few verses that string this together. So in chapter 2, verse 10, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. Chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then in chapter 4, verses 20 to 21, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So praying for each other is one very clear way in which we're demonstrating that love. It's no surprise, therefore, that he applies this confidence in prayer to our love for one another. But he focuses on perseverance against sin. Essentially, if you see a fellow Christian pursuing sinful behaviour, a sinful attitude, then pray that God convicts them, that they seek his forgiveness, that they'd stop the action, that they'd enjoy Christ and mature through obedience. That's the prayer. And I hope this sounds a bit challenging. I hope this makes you think, hmm, I hadn't thought about that really. You see, what's more surprising and vexing as, as we discussed this in our staff meeting on Wednesday is what John says about sin and death. So not only is it, oh right, okay, so we pray when we know someone is actually in a place of disobedience before God, but then what's John saying? What's John saying about this sin and death? And it, he raises, it raises two questions in the passage here. What is the sin that leads to death? And then secondly, why does John not, not say we should pray for people committing such a sin? When it was read, the passage, did you go, oh, I hope that we look at that because that's a bit knotty, isn't it? Well, I'm going to move on. No, I'm not. <laughs> First principle of Bible study is you look for the clues in the context of the letter or book you're reading. How has John spoken about sin? How has he spoken about death so far in life? Well, let's start with the big encouragement about sin, which you'll find in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And I'll just read those as a reminder. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness admitting, owning that we're sinners is a clear sign that we're not deceived. And we're in agreement with God's truth. That's first, thumbs up. Secondly, we hear that God forgives all who say sorry to him for their sin 
because of Jesus' sacrifice, his blood shed on a cross cleanses every person who accepts his sacrifice on their behalf. That is great news. The Son delights in saying to the Father, count these people, this person, forgiven of all their sin because they believe in me. That is what he's doing now, seated in the heavenlies, representing his family, which is ever-growing, covered by his forgiveness. And the Father delights, saying, yes, I count them forgiven. They're cleansed. They're with us. They have eternal life. Wow. John was also clear that true believers desire to walk in the light. So in verse 7 of chapter 1, we read that. And to live as Jesus did, chapter 2, verse 6. And to seek the power of the Holy Spirit, to live a life of love for one another, obeying God's commands in chapter 3. You see, our appetites have changed. Yes, we do struggle with sin, but we don't want to make a practice of it in chapter 3, verse 9. That is not who we are. We want rid of it because we belong to God. We are ruled by his presence, his spirit in us. Our appetites have changed. Believers know that eternal life is both a present gift, that's clear there in verse 13 of chapter 5, and a future promise, chapter 2, verse 25 of the letter, is both a present gift and a future promise. This is the gift of God to us. And so, sin that leads to death is that deliberate refusal to believe in Jesus Christ, as we've seen throughout the letter. It is a deliberate refusal to follow God's commands to love one another's brother. And this leads to judgment and everlasting hell. John made that clear in his Gospel, chapter 336. The wrath of God remains on those who do not accept the Son. It remains on false teachers disrupting and deceiving John's congregations who are pulling them away from living under Christ's truth. Well, what does that mean for us as Christians today, then? John calls us to pray for each other, knowing that uh, sin hardens our hearts. These little compromises lead to more and more disobediences. They pave the way to a deeper rebellion, to a hardness towards God. It means that praying that as a church family, we will not be choked by the love for the world. Not choked by its concerns. Wasn't it interesting? Emil said as soon as he brought that issue to prayer and in prayer to God, he felt a peace. That's what Paul promises. The peace of Christ will keep your hearts and minds in him. That peace transcends our understanding. We get perspective. It's a big deal, this issue. But it's not the biggest. We don't want to be choked by the world's concerns. It means praying that we remain faithful to God's word, not falling for the latest spiritual fad or being confused by persuasive cultural arguments that undermine Jesus' word. It means having our minds renewed by God's word to be able to handle these tough conversations and discussions, to know our position under God's word. 
And when you think of the typical church prayer meeting, which rightly focuses on the needs of the world, our city, our mission partners, on evangelism, on life groups, on church events, we don't often have a section called the sinning people section, do we? <laughs> but persevering in holiness is something we all, as believers, want to take seriously. The theologian Howard Marshall he observed this. He said, it is not a characteristic of the modern church prayer meeting that we pray for specific members who have fallen into sin by name. John's words are a challenge to the quality of our intercession for others. Now, of course, there's a pastorally appropriate way of doing that. But the Apostle John is uncompromisingly clear that loving each other means praying boldly for one another that we do not fall into sin. I think that's a huge challenge for us here in the UK. Well, we, we just don't look like that is important in our fellowship, in our life. We want to keep it private and hidden and unexposed. And I'm not saying it should be out there for everyone. There's wisdom. There's accountability. But believers, pray for one another that we do not fall into sin. Pray for your church leadership that they do not fall into sin. If you're praying for that, you can at least be surprised when they do. If you're not, and you're surprised when they do fall into sin, well, shame on us. But John, what, what does it mean then for those whose sin leads to death? Are you telling us not to care? Would that be the question on the congregation's mind? Verse 16b, there is a sin that leads to death, I am not saying that you should pray about that. Whilst, well, throughout the letter you'll see that John can be quite blunt. He talks a lot about love, but he's also not afraid to not pull his punches. And using stark terms, he makes a point sink deep. He is very careful here, though. He is very careful here. There's also almost a hesitancy in the way he speaks. Notice he does not forbid prayer for those who have committed such sin. He simply notes that he has not told us that we should pray for that. His words, therefore, leave the door open for us to pray. There isn't a command here. The door is open to pray. And then perhaps at some point to stop praying without feeling guilty about it. In our staff meeting, again, um, Grace helpfully pointed out a reference in Jeremiah 11:14, which um, the prophet Jeremiah uh, is speaking the words of the Lord and says, Therefore, do not pray for this people, that is, uh, Israel, who were rebelling against God's ways and were heading for exile. Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. Now, there's a specific context a frightening word for a specific people who have had so many chances but have continued to ignore and turn away. And God says it's time for judgment. There will be no relief. And yet that act, exile did come to an end. There was a promise of peace. And in chapter 29, we hear God saying to the exiles, pray for the peace of the city I've taken you to Babylon that they will prosper, that you will be a blessing. 
So we see restoration as well, but here quite clearly a word that was a cut-off. Jesus told his disciples as well that there would be a time to shake off the dust from their feet when a city would not listen, Matthew 10. And it seems that John is acknowledging that people, especially those who've been part of the church community, maybe as elders or teachers that have moved away from the faith, that are proactively teaching error, that there may come a point when praying for them should stop. These words that are severe in one sense, yet still leaving the door open, make complete sense when directed at those false teachers. They make complete sense when you see those who have had positions of responsibility teaching truth, then going a completely opposite way and pulling Christ down. Now, don't think that means you can erase 25% of your prayer list. It's not like that. Discernment is key here. Discernment is about being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Who are you praying for? Do you know what they're facing in life? Are you praying into those issues? Don Carson, who is, uh, who is one of the world's leading evangelical scholars for the last 30 years plus, his dad, Tom, was a Baptist pastor in French-speaking Canada. His churches that he pastored in were small, they struggled through persecution, and yet Tom's prayer life had a big impact on Don. He didn't write any books. Don made up for that in the number that he wrote and edited. But Don had said this about his father. My dad never put anyone down except on his prayer list. Isn't that amazing? My dad never put anyone down except on his prayer list. And so finally, as we end, what is going to keep us going? What is going to give us that hope, that perspective, and assurance that is unshakable? Well, this is where John ends in 18 to 21, and I'd love to spend more time on it. I can't. I think I will do a seminar particularly on the issue of spiritual warfare over uh, the next few months. But let's look at these verses, 18 to 21, an assurance that we're in God, we are safe, even in the midst of a spiritual context. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, verse 18. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one, that is the devil, who's been mentioned in chapter 3, verse 8, cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. You see, there is a war on, a real one, as real as the one in Ukraine. But it's not obvious to us. It's easy to fall complacent. But it's taking place in the spiritual realm as a real part of God's creation, a real part of created order, as much as the earth we're inhabiting now. John would wholeheartedly agree with Paul's description of the war that is being fought over human souls as being rescued from the dominion of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the Son of God, the Son whom he loves, into the kingdom of light. And that kingdom of being filled with a multitude of holy people. It's how Paul describes the battle in Colossians 1. And there is a lot to be said on the subject of standing firm in the, spirit, in the spiritual warfare. Um, 
This book here, uh, William Gurnall's The Christian in Complete Armour. That's my edition. You can see how big it is. I think it's probably bigger than my ESV study Bible. But um, he was a Puritan Church of England pastor. He wrote those volumes between 1655 and 1662 just on Ephesians 6. Uh, in this edition, there's 1,200 pages with two columns of text on each page. That's the level he goes into to help tool up Christians to apply and to know where they stand in the battle. But we have here some clear encouragements, don't we? That firstly, we have an ultimate protector. Did you see that in the passage in those verses? The one who was born of God. Now, yes, this could refer to believers who are praying for each other. But it seems more likely that this is a reference clearly to Jesus, the only son, and believers as adopted children. It is Jesus who protects his family for the evil one, who does not let the evil one touch them. Just as he prayed for Peter's protection in Luke 22. And while Satan's influence is pervasive, and Satan's purpose, as, as Jesus said, John 8, 44, is he's a murderer and a liar. So his purpose is to kill and to destroy by lies. We can see the rebellious world under his control. It, that, that should take your breath away when you heard that verse read. Verse 19. The world under the, his control, with its antichrist philosophies, with its immoral behavior, with its selfish desires. You see, Satan's work flourishes where the human will is already most disobedient to God. That's why Paul talks about the sons of disobedience. How, how does this satanic influence work out? It works out in rebellious people who want nothing to do with Christ. His poison gets everywhere. Whole industries, illegal and legal, are affected. Some more obvious than others. You'll, you'll be able to think of it. Drugs trade, pornography, gambling, sex trades. But what about the, in, you know, the injustices, the conflict caused by big, legitimate industries, big pharma, weapons industry? Even the media, even the church and its institutions are affected. John makes clear that these false teachers with the Antichrist spirit have departed from the churches the apostles planted. I mean, this is a wake-up call, church, isn't it? Satan works in a number of ways to frustrate that spread of the gospel. To discourage believers and in the context of John's letter that the love of the world which he's mentioned in chapter 2 is something Paul picks up on in his letter to Corinth and he talks about it in the sense of the minds of unbelievers being blinded in chapter 2 from Corinthians chapter 2 uh, sorry 2 Corinthians chapter 4 even if our gospel is veiled Paul says it is veiled only to those who are perishing in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So before the Christian even gets to share the gospel or ask soul-searching questions, Satan's power means he has cast a stupefying, deadening, blinding effect on the minds of the world. And can you see, therefore, Christians, we, we need power to overcome this. We need the supernatural power of the Lord over the evil one. And that power is in his Holy Spirit, who brings his word to open blind eyes, to renew disobedient minds, to raise the spiritually dead. That power is at work. The Lord's kingdom has come. 
And it is coming. You see, God has evil on a leash. Satan is boxed in. Jesus suffered and died. He thought the victory for Satan was there, but was ultimately resurrected. And so the ultimate victory is assured because Christ's resurrection, we are safe in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. That is our security. That means we can never be concerned or overly worried about the spiritual battle. But it does mean we can't become complacent. Do you see the world this way? Do you need a wake-up call to the reality of this spiritual battle in your own walk with the Lord? Part of why we want to have some men's ministry is because I think as blokes, we sleepwalk through life. We don't take seriously what God's word says about our responsibilities. We think we can be quite passive, and that's okay. We dabble with foolish things to make us feel comfortable for a short time. And I don't think John has anything to do with that. I think he says, wake up. That's why he finishes with such a mic drop moment. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. No prayer. No, I love you lots. If this was John, like, where's the love? You know, you're the one who goes on about loving everyone. Couldn't you have finished on that note? No. Keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because we're in a battle. The battle is won. We know who we are. Are we going to walk his way? Today, come to him who is the true God, who gives eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have everything in Christ Jesus. Thank you that the Apostle John so cares about our souls and that your Holy Spirit working through him, that he has given us your word to help us to stand firm in a world that does not know Christ, yet needs his love and light. Father, help us to be people who walk with you, who are awake in this battle, knowing the victory is Christ, that we are his. Lord, strengthen us wherever we stand with you, with our big questions, maybe with our doubts, maybe still weighing up whether we want to follow Christ. Lord, would you meet us in those questions? Maybe we've been walking for many years. Would you continue to strengthen us that we would be faithful, that we would persevere in prayer and rejoice in the gifts you have given us, Lord? And we pray this for your kingdom to come. We pray that it would be for your will to be done and for your glory to be seen throughout this city, this nation, this world. Amen.